Good morning. Great to be here with all of you today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and German with me this morning to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. deceptions. 
Peter then is carrying on in this way of being an instrument of God. He writes this epistle to the church as a warning. The purpose of his letter then is for exposing, thwarting, and defeating the wave of false teachers into the church. It suited that purpose when he wrote it. It still suits that purpose today. Now, the description of these false teachers doesn't start until you reach um, essentially chapter 2. And Peter describes them in three different ways in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice, first, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will secretly, secretly introduce destructive heresies. These false teachers weren't necessarily hiding what it was that they were teaching, but were probably covering up to the degree to which they were teaching, their teaching differed from that of the apostles. And really, that's how most false teachers operate. It's not all lies, but you know, just enough to distort the gospel and to damn you to eternal hell. And that leads us to number two. These false teachers were even denying the master who bought them. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has purchased his people. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, Paul writes, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And although these false teachers at one time had given the appearance that they were followers of Christ, they in fact denied him, and we see this here in their false doctrine, and then a little later in their immoral lifestyle. And then thirdly, also notice, they were bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Peter's going to elaborate on this over the rest of the chapter, but the point is clear enough that these false teachers were inviting the swift um, cataclysmic judgment of eternal destruction upon their lives. I mean, these people must really not believe in God because the judgment that's coming to them is absolutely frightening. For example, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Peter says of these false teachers, they teach destructive heresies. They deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They entice unsteady souls. They are men who twist scripture to make it suit their own purposes. They despise authority. They are arrogant and immoral. They are coveter exploiters of their fellow men. They are entangled in sin. They are dominated by their lusts and evil desires. They will share the same fate as the fallen angels in the time of Noah, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the greedy prophet Balaam. Their eyes are filled with adultery. Their hearts are trained for greed. They are slaves to their own lusts. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it and turning back. 
They're like a dog who returns to its vomit and eats it. These are men who essentially use God's grace as an excuse and justification to go on sinning, and were even worse, twisting scriptures to do so. Very likely Paul's. So when reading this short letter, we see there's an urgency in Peter's heart as he writes to these churches for the last time. Notice what he says back in chapter 1 and verse 12. He writes, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am with as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And so what Peter is saying is, listen, I don't know how much time I have left here on this earth. Alright? So even though I know you already know these truths, I still want to stir you up in them. You'll notice that this is a letter of reminder. You know, sometimes I'll be studying and praying and saying, well, God, show me a new way that I can teach this to, to, to really um, move the congregation with excitement and, and passion. And God says, teach it again. Remind them again. Same story, same book. It's living, it's active. It'll teach itself and go to new depths and new things. You don't need firecrackers and all these whistles for the Remind them of what I told you in the beginning. And then keep reminding them. We need the reminder. I want you to stir them up with, with what I've already told you by way of reminder. So when I'm gone, you'll identify these wolves in sheep's clothing and protect the flock of God from their lies. Now, Peter's purpose in exposing these false teachers um, in the scripture is not primarily to deal with the doctrine of these heretics as much as he deals with their own personal character. He's more concerned about, um, he's concerned about what they say, but he's more concerned about what they do. And I think the reason for this is because false teachers' doctrines um, very well will change, but the character is always the same. They're a wolf in sheep's clothing. So recognize it. And so even though we don't know the exact group of these false teachers that um, was coming at these people, and even though we don't know all those specific details about them, they sound like Gnostics, but um, we can from this epistle learn how to spot the deceiver and learn how to protect ourselves from their deception nonetheless. And that's Peter's concern. His, current, his concern is that the church doesn't fall prey to these false teachers' deception. Now, there are basically three defenses that Peter is going to highlight for us throughout this letter. Defense number one, know your salvation. Defense number two, know your scripture. And defense number three, know your sanctification. Those are three things he wants us to know as we grow in God's grace. Protection number one, know your salvation. And we'll start with this today, um, but basically this is verses 1 through 11. Notice verse 10, for example, of chapter 1. 
Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Okay, so protection number one, know that you're saved. Know that you're saved. Protection number two, know your scripture. And that runs from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to chapter 3, verse 2. As Peter will highlight just how important knowing your scripture is to defending yourself against these false teachers. For example, in chapter 1 and verse 16, listen to what Peter writes. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales or, or myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and were then, and, and were then uh, essentially verse 21 says, moved by the Spirit to write these things down to you. There's the Spirit of God who moved the apostles to write these things down. But they were eyewitnesses to the majesties of the Lord. And so Peter's saying, um, and you had better be sure that you follow what we write than those destructive heresies which will bring about your swift destruction. So protection number one, know your salvation. Protection number two, know your scripture. Be sure that you're saved, number one. Be sure you know the truth, number two. And then the final one, protection number three, is know your sanctification. Peter says at the end of the letter, chapter 3, verse 18, grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so those are the, the three lines of defense uh, Peter lays out against the false teachers and you'll notice in each of these protections, it involves knowing something. And that's because a key word in 2 Peter is the word knowledge. It's not so much uh, knowledge as in your intellect that will help you to spot the deceivers, but it's through a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must know the truth in order to stand with the truth. We must know the truth in order to stand with the truth. Now this world uh, word knowledge then is, is prominent in all three of the chapters. In one form or another it appears 16 times in this short letter. Six of those times is in the intensive form epigenosis. Gnosis is the uh, common word which means to know. Um, it's made more intense with the addition of epi. And it intensifies it to speak of one's perception, one's um, discernment. So it is what we know that will help protect us. We have to identify these false teachers, and Peter describes them for us very clearly in chapter 2. He says how they're going to come, and he says what their character is going to be. But in order to protect ourselves, we must first know that we are saved. Confidence in our salvation, confidence in all of our resources of salvation and a true knowledge of God through Jesus Christ is the first line of defense. And this, beloved, is what we saw last week in Ephesians 6, in the helmet of salvation. And when your adversary, the devil, comes 
prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and he comes at you wielding the sword of, of false doctrine and deception and lies, one of your first means of protection is the helmet of salvation. It's the defense of knowing that you are saved. The accuser is going to come at you with lies, making you want to doubt your salvation. It's the defense of knowing you're saved. It's the protection of knowing I belong to God. And so with that then in view, Peter spends this opening section on the issue of salvation. Now today we're just going to be looking at the um, probably just the first verse, but over the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to be working in the section verses 1 through 11. And here in the section, Peter wants to remove any doubt the believer might have concerning their salvation. He wants to remove this. If you are truly saved, you've got the other side of the issue, where many believe that they're saved and they're not. But here, Peter is concerned with those doubting their salvation. A believer who is unsure of their salvation will become easy prey for the false teachers, and so he confronts this issue first. Now the tone for this discussion is immediately introduced in the greeting in verses 1 and 2. Notice again what it says. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, before we get into the theme, I want to just cover some of um, Peter's introduction. Notice in verse 1, the author's name. Um, the epistle begins with both his names, Simon, Peter. Simon, Peter. Now, Simon is the Greek form of Simeon, which is the Hebrew name. Why use both here? Well, for starters, Simon was a very common name. Um, he was very likely named by his parents after um, Simeon, who was the father of the, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But in the Greek culture in which he lived, they called him Simon. And so in the manuscripts, you have both names listed. Some are Simeon, some are Simon. And Simon was such a common name as any name. For example, in the New Testament alone, there are at least nine other examples of other men who are called Simon. So the second name then is essential. Which Simon or which Simeon? Well, Simon Peter. We get Peter from that Greek word which means rock. And then we sometimes see the name Cephas, and that name comes from the common language of the time, Aramaic. So to make it nice and clear exactly who it is who's writing this, he says Simon Peter. And then he further identifies himself in verse 1. Notice the word he uses next. Simon Peter, a bondservant. Now that word there, bondservant, is doulos in the Greek. And it means a lot more than just a uh, working servant. Doulos literally means a slave. In Peter's eyes, the Lord Jesus Christ owned him. In total humility, Peter is saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. This once proud and 
boastful man Peter is now a lowly and humbled servant of God as he puts himself in submission to his master. Speaks of Christ's lordship over his life and puts him on the same level with all other believers who serve Christ Jesus as their Lord. In Philippians chapter 3, in verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes from prison, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, Paul was also a slave of Christ. And you knew who else was? James starts his book, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, the brother, a slave of Jesus Christ. And here also Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ, as we all should be. And so Peter is identifying himself with all of us. And though he was the leader among the twelve, and though he was the great preacher on that day of Pentecost, he was, most of all, Simon Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Then he says, turning from humility to his authority in Christ, he is also an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while on one hand, he humbles himself to be equal with all other believers, on the other hand, he represents himself as a spokesman for Christ. And uh, this eliminates, uh, or this elevates him to the office, or the unique office, as one of the chosen apostles. This term apostle means one officially sent forth by Christ himself as a divinely called and commissioned witness of the resurrection of Christ. He was humbled under the submission of Christ, and yet he was the one who had great authority as a representative of Christ. And there's the model for spiritual leadership, the submissive, sacrificial obedience of a slave joined with the strength, boldness, and courage of an apostle. And then one final note to make in this little introduction that we find in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those. Stop right there. Let's answer who Peter is writing to. Who are those? Well, 2 Peter, chapter 3, in verse 1, he writes this. This is now the second letter I'm writing you. So... We know then he's writing to the same people who received the first letter, right? And who were they? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 told us, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. In other words, this is God's elect church, who were scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. It could have been to 10 churches. It could have been to 100 churches. We just don't know. These were predominantly 
Gentiles, yes, but certainly there would have been some Jews mixed in as well who were part of the fellowship. Second Peter was also likely written from Rome. Remember last week we saw, I assume, that um, Peter was in Rome when he wrote the first letter. It was probably written about a year later. Um, Nero, we know, died in 68 AD. Tradition tells us both Peter and Paul died under Nero's um, awful persecution. And with first <coughs> Peter likely being written right around 64 AD, um, and Peter must have died before 68, maybe um, 67 or, or 66. So second Peter likely then was penned about a year later, um, maybe around the year 65 or so. This would have made it a prison epistle, by the way. We know that Peter was facing imminent death. And as I read earlier in chapter 1 and verse 14, he says, I know that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. Is imminent. And again, tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, um, even refusing to be crucified right side up as his Lord was, and so he asked them to be crucified upside down. These, then, are the final words of Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And as he approaches the end of his earthly life, God puts on his heart how to expose these false teachers triumphantly. And he begins where he has to begin in the first line of defense, our salvation. Now, he's going to tell us three things about our salvation. You'll see these listed on the back of your bulletin. And this is what will take us over the next couple weeks or so. We're going to begin today. Um, with just point number one, and that is going to be the source of our salvation. Salvation's source. Notice again, verse one. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God in, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you saw it or not, but Peter just identified the source of our faith. See where he says received? To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Having received this faith implies what? It implies that it is a gift. A gift. We received it. This is an important important topic that we're talking about, the source of our salvation. How did I come to believe? It's a question we should be able to answer. So let's look at this a little bit closer. Um, to start, this is one of these great words to do a word study on. This is the verb it's not a common word. It means to obtain by lot. To obtain by lot. Do you remember when the apostles um, cast a lot in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. They needed to replace Judas, and so they put forward two um, men, two candidates. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 24, it says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship 
from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Then verse 26 tells us, and they cast lots for them. Casting lots was a way in biblical times in which God could providentially um, control earthly circumstances and reveal to his people his exact sovereign will. It came to mean given by an allotment. Given by an allotment. It refers to something not attained by human effort, not based on personal worthiness, but issued from God's sovereign purpose. In fact, in almost all the lexicons of the Greek language, it says it means to obtain by divine will. To obtain by divine will. So Peter is writing to believers who have received their faith because God, who is rich in mercy, graciously willed to give it to them. And we're right back in Ephesians chapter 2, aren't we? Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation, including the faith to believe, is all a part of God's gracious gift. Let's consider for a moment our depraved nature <coughs> that we were all born into. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it talks about the God of this world who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. According to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so there's just a small uh, picture of, of what's going on. We were by nature children of wrath. Satan, the god of this world, we were born spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, and he has blinded our minds. We could not see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. We were all headed toward eternal destruction. In fact, Romans chapter 3 expands on this as Paul writes, There is none who is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. In our dead state, no one seeks after God. We can't. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is like an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. So how on earth then does a man or a woman who is dead, blind, deaf to the things of God, and by nature, children of 
ears pierced, our hearts open to the things of God, how do you go from, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How do you take that which was dead and make it alive together with Christ? Answer, it takes a supernatural work of God. And if we come to believe, it is only because God has granted to us an allotment of faith. And therefore, he gets all the glory. In fact, even when it comes to the matter of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Faith comes from God. It is measured out and allotted to us for salvation and for his service and glory. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So it has been granted to you by God for Christ's sake to believe. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. So God initiates our faith by the washing of regeneration, Titus 3.5. As the Holy Spirit takes out our heart of stone, he puts in a, a new heart of flesh, which beats for the things of God. And as a new creation, suddenly that which was dead has become alive. He now has eyes to see, ears to hear, and a response in faith to the hearing of the words and all of a sudden, the cross that looked foolish to him yesterday now becomes the greatest demonstration of love he's ever known as he sees Jesus on it, dying for our sins. Taking that which was dead and making it alive in a moment, in an instant, can only be described as the supernatural work of God. Believing is not about making a decision. I honestly do not like that, those set of words. The gospel isn't a take it or leave it kind of a thing. We are commanded to believe. We are called to believe. And just as Jesus told the, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born from above. John 1, 12, 13, and 14 say. And so God, who is rich in mercy, graciously gives to us this, this gift of belief. And what did you do? You received this precious gift of faith. And again, God gets all the glory. All the glory. Now back to our verse. There's even more here to see. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Let's stop right there for a moment. Received a faith of the same kind. This uh, phrase, same kind, is a word uh, 
satimos or satimos, and it means um, equal in value. Used in a uh, political sense, it means equal in rank, equal in position, equal in honor, equal in standing. In the economic usage, it means equal in value and equally precious. In fact, if you have an old King James, that's why they translate this, a like precious faith. A like precious faith. But what he is saying here is, is we have all received the same equally honored, equally precious, equally valuable faith. There's no such thing as a second-class Christian or, or a third-class Christian. No, you are all first-class Christians. We have all received a faith of the same kind. In fact, that's what Paul is talking about when he writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You received the faith of the same kind as ours. An equally precious and an equally precious privileges as well. So God has given us all the same kind of saving faith. The source of our salvation is God. He gives us the faith. And what are the means, you ask? Well, the middle of verse 1. Who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this is a wonderful word, righteousness. Uh, it speaks of the holiness of God, and it is the very justifying power that God possesses, enabling him to redeem sinners. In other words, we have the faith to believe and are saved because God's righteousness is given to us. On our own, we cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot earn righteousness. It is the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who imputes it to us. So we have faith only because God gives it, and we are saved only because he imputes to us his righteousness. We need credited to our account. It is only Christ's righteousness that is efficient to pay our debt. Our wages of sin is death. In fact, um, this is the heart of Paul's message, starting in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time.
so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Sinners are given eternal life because the Savior imputes his perfect righteousness on them, covering their sins and rendering them acceptable now to God. In the very next chapter, Romans 4, 4 through 5, amen, there is, Paul continues with this incredible truth. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as <coughs> righteousness. Isn't that a beautiful set of verses? See, if you ask most of the world and all of the world religions, they will tell you that those who are good will get into heaven. But Paul tells us no one is good. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And work as we may, we cannot justify ourselves before a holy and just God. The requirement is perfect righteousness. And there was only one God-man who lived that kind of life. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says for the one who does not work, the one who does not try to earn his way in, but believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, his faith will be credited as righteousness. Beloved, isn't this incredible? We serve a God who not only gives us the faith to believe, but then he justifies us by imputing his perfect righteousness into my account. I mean, he, he literally just clothes us with his righteousness. Paul says in Acts chapter 13, 38 through 39, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through his forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. When you believe and you're freed from the penalty of sin, the law of Moses was never created to do that. That's the kind of righteousness that Paul is talking about. And then, also, did you notice that Peter does not refer to our God and Father here, but our God and what? Savior. Huh. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Righteousness here does proceed from the Father, but it reaches every believer through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek construction here has only one article before that phrase, our God and Savior, which makes it all refer to one person. And so all bound up in that, Peter's identifying Jesus, not just as Savior, but as God. So the next time you run into uh, your Mormon friend, 
or someone who says, you know, the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God, show them that Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, he is God. And anything less than that is a denial of his deity. The Lord has always been described as both God and Savior. In fact, it was in Matthew chapter 1 when Jesus was born. He was to be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He was born to be a Savior. But let me show you as we finish up here in the Old Testament, many are not aware that the Lord has always been known as Savior. So let's finish off looking at a few quick um, verses in the book of Isaiah. If you want to follow along, turn to Isaiah, and we'll hit just a couple verses in a row, and we'll draw this thing to a close. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3, notice what it says. It says, For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your what? Savior. Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no other Savior besides me. Isaiah 45, verse 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. Isaiah 45, verse 21, a few verses down. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old, of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. And then finally, Isaiah 60, verse 16, at the very end of the verse, it says, Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer. You see, when Peter says back in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, that we have received such a, a precious faith, this, this gift from God, that cannot be earned, that cannot be lost, that solely depends on Christ, as he allots to us this precious faith to believe, as the Lord provides for it, with his own righteousness, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, beloved. Salvation is God's gift in every sense, as he is the source of it, for he is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'll just close today with a quick reminder from Romans 3.23. As Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If your faith isn't solely put upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I call on you today from the authority of God's word to cry to beg for his mercy. Cry out for his perfect righteousness. Ask God for a new heart. Tell him you're done being a slave 
to sin. That you have nothing to offer. That you are a, a beggar. And you want to spend the rest of your life as a slave for Christ. Forsaking all and following him. If you need prayers this morning, we would be happy to pray with you. You're welcome to come down or, or stay after Sister Elizabeth also. We'd be happy to pray with anyone. And um, you're welcome to come forward today. As we stand and sing in Christ alone. Thank you.